the National Archives podcast series, Drink, the History of Alcohol, 1690-1920. I was intrigued by the subject when I was invited by Sue Lawrence to work with her on this exhibition. I was intrigued because as a curator, I've been looking after for many years the material culture of consumption, that is, things to do with eating and drinking, and certainly at the Victorian Albert Museum, there are showcases full of glasses. It doesn't say so on them, but they're to do with either serving or consuming drink. Jugs in the ceramics galleries, wine coolers, and virtually nothing is said in the V&A about how they were used, what they cost, who consumed what. The social history of drink is discussed in lots of places, but not in the V&A. So I was particularly glad to be forced, if you like, to think about the marriage between the historical facts, taxation, excise, issues of smuggling, issues of the, the appropriateness of drinking at work, or as today it is the, the, the inappropriateness of drinking at work. And that's why our first image is this painting of the tailors, which I discussed briefly a few minutes ago. The workmen right across Britain, whether they were farm labourers, whether they were porters, whether they were tailors, whether they were printers, anybody in a physical or artisanal occupation would expect drink at work, beer at work. Why? Water was, pure water, was not generally available until the mid-19th century, till the Public Health Acts, really until 1850, after 1854. Beer, not necessarily strong beer, it might be 2-3%, although London Porter was much stronger than that, it was up to 8% or even 9%. Beer, beer, beer was a daily necessity. It provided, by the 1690s, it was providing probably between a fifth and a quarter of the calor calorific needs for um, both men, women and children. It built Britons. There was a great sense of patriotism in that beer was brewed from British barley, although I must admit by the second half of the 19th century it was mainly American barley, but there was this sense that um, there, it was patriotic to drink beer and weakling, weakly, um, starving, inadequate, feeble, battle-losing Frenchmen drank wine. And that was a very popular image, um, for example, in the caricatures that Hogarth produced, that contrast between the two countries. And indeed, he wrote a poem about um, how Britons were best and Britons drank beer and so on. That is, of, of course, an exaggeration, but it was a truth that in a school, in a hospital, in a workhouse, you would be given beer pint, two pints, three pints, depending on your age, depending on your sex. Um, indeed, the children at Christ Hospital actually had three pints a day, but that was a rather weak, small beer, probably only about 2% proof. So I was intrigued by the uh, challenges of, of, first of all, finding a document, but then also the possibility of finding explanations for certain phenomena. For example, as a curator in silver, I've been used to thinking about, um, for example, silver tumbler cups, which appear as a phenomenon in London, in York, um, in Exeter, I think also Chester, at the beginning of the 17th century, from about 1630. But it wasn't clear to me what they were for. Little informal drinking vessels that rock, that you can carry in your pocket, that you might have your initials on. They're not about formal drinking. They're not about men sitting ceremoniously. 
Well, of course, the explanation, it becomes obvious, is that spirits distilling becomes extremely active in London in the first decade of the 17th century. It becomes big business, in fact. And when the East India Company are sending uh, an embassy to Yehangir, to the... To the um, uh, to the, uh, what's he called, his uh, king, uh, in India in 1614, they actually send 36 bottles of London distilled spirits. And the bottles are wrapped in velvet and they're packed in special cases. It was a very prestigious present. And this alcohol <coughs> that they're sending out to India, this newly distilled spirit, it's clearly seen as a new English product that they wanted to boast about and perhaps create trade interest in in India, was far more expensive than 30 paintings, oil paintings, I can't quite see why they chose to send oil paintings, that were sent out from Rouen. So there is a, a story there about spirits becoming fashionable at the beginning of the 17th century and explaining these expensive silver wine tumblers. Then moving right forward to the early 19th century, I had been puzzled by the fact that um, in, in silver bottle tickets, you know, the, the labels that were hung on decanters that identified alcohol, which start about 1720 when, uh, when the English began to differ, well, began in detail to differentiate between different kinds of wine, and they wanted to, to know on the table whether they were getting something from <coughs> France or Portugal or Spain, uh, what, what their host was offering. But there are no whiskey labels until the early 19th century. Well, it becomes apparent once one goes into the history, but on the whole, the people who write about whiskey haven't written about this aspect of it. But it wasn't until George IV went, for, went north in 1822 in that extraordinary visit orchestrated by Walter Scott when he basically wrapped himself in tartan and turned himself into a Scottish king, which was quite difficult to do for the Hanoverians given the history of the Stuarts. But it, he was, in fact, the first king to go north to Scotland since Charles I had gone on his ill-fated 1633 coronation visit when he lost half the royal silver in the Firth of Forth. And so George IV was determined to make a success of this visit. He drank whiskey publicly, uh, distilled illicitly in the Highlands on the estate of one of the Scottish aristocrats, I, I forget which. He made a great fuss about the fact that he was given this delicious Scottish delicacy, Athel Brose of oatmeal, honey, and Highland whiskey. Um, and the following year, the legislation, the license fee for distilling in the Highlands was reduced dramatically. It had been £120 to have a license to distill whiskey, and therefore only the big commercial lowland distillers took out licenses, the commercial distillers. The following year, 1823, Parliament passed a law reducing the licence fee to, I think, £8, and 15,000 licences were taken out by Highland, small Highland distilleries, and the rest is history. I mean, whisky became an English drink as well, and that's something which I had not understood how it happened. So it's a combination of a change in the law, making it possible to, to distill licitly at not at a great expense, but also the king made whisky fashionable. He brought back six gallons on his yacht from Edinburgh, but actually, the, 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 well, of course, it hadn't paid tax. <laughs> the, the value, the cost of the whisky, was much less than the cost of his seltzer water that he imported very expensively, <laughs> to presumably to, to, to dilute his gin or his punch. I don't know. So that was a, a, a very 
illuminating way in which the documents and the objects and the social history actually came together and explained something which had not, to, to my knowledge, been, been explained in that way before. I don't know whether um, I can <laughs> expect other people to be excited about this as I was, but it certainly is very satisfying to get that together. What we wanted to bring out in the exhibition, I've mentioned the question of excise um, and the significance of the excise, and also the customs, the duties that were paid on imported goods. What was important to bring out was that, of course, the excise men, and Tom Paine is a character who appears, thank you, who appears um, in the exhibition and is, of course, much better known for his writings about freedom and democracy and the, the, being the father of the American Revolution. In fact, he even invented the term the United States of America. But he was an excise man, and the excise men were hated. I hadn't quite understood why. And the reason is that they could pry. They could pry into the private houses of the gentry and nobility to see whether they'd paid tax on their silver whether they'd paid their excise, whether they'd paid the excise on their new coach, whether their footman's wigs, the wig powder, had paid excise. All of those things were private people could be checked by the excise men. And when it came to the commercial enterprises, when it came, to, for example, to brewing, a brewer, the, the malting, um, the burning of malt, and many of you will remember the smell by the river when, when the, <laughs> sadly, all those breweries that are almost gone, um, when, when they were malting, there would be this wonderful, rich roast smell. And that, of course, you can't disguise, and you certainly couldn't disguise in former times. So the very large number of people who had private home breweries, um, Sir Joseph Banks, for example, just down the road in, in Middlesex, he was brewing 4,000 gallons of beer a year just for his private household, just for his servants. Now, the, the, the malting smell would, of course, immediately attract the excise man because tax was paid on the malt by weight. The excise men had keys to the maltings. They had keys to the breweries. They could go in in the middle of the night to inspect what was going on. So it's understandable that Tom Paine was exposed to some very extreme situations in terms of the um, <laughs> both the, 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 the brewers and also private individuals where he was having to, as they would see it, interfere with their private interests. It's, that was a new, again, a, a, a new thing to me, although those of you who are specialists in excise history will, of course, not be surprised by that. But it does make vivid kinds of attitudes that Kipling refers to in some of his stories where he's reconstructing the history of the past, um, the, the, the um, ubiquitous and <laughs> demanding nature of, of, of the excise man's role. As far as customs are concerned, of course, it's a different issue there. Given that the English government, British government, had this policy from 1690 of high taxes on all alcohol, on, on malt, which of course is the basis of beer, but on, on other drinks as well, including tea and chocolate and coffee, it was inevitable that smuggling would flourish because spirits were the way to keep you going. 
in Lincolnshire, for example, an area that was prone to malaria, to ague, because it was low and wet until the fens were drained, spirits were smuggled very extensively along the coast, not for pleasure, but purely for medicinal reasons. And it's something that, again, we've forgotten, because we take for granted now that the, um, the pharmacy can produce medicines. But, of course, medicines were homemade, medicines were home-produced, and spirits were one of the ways to deal with a high fever. We have very dramatic illustrations of the ways in which smuggling and legitimacy counterbalanced each other. One went up, the other went down. For example, um, in the Napoleonic Wars, when there was a very strong blockade, both Napoleon blockading us against rum from the West Indies and gin from Holland and brandy, of course, from France, and no wine from France, no champagne from France, which particularly unpleasant for the aristocracy, who'd become very popular. It had become very popular with the aristocracy by by the um, early 19th century, sparkling champagne as opposed to flat wine. But of course, as soon as the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleonic Wars ended, <coughs> there was a real concern that smuggling was about to burst out again. So we have a very interesting illustration, in, again in TNA, of a map that actually shows the points along the coast around Southampton where that uh, the, where the smugglers were known to land their goods, and each of the names along the coast are a point that was vulnerable, a point that needed to be patrolled. But of course the most effective patrols were a combination between the land agents and the sea, the cutters at sea. And because the war was over, because there was no work for naval officers, they, there was a, a tremendous um, resource for the fast cutters, which were the, the ships, the boats, which were patrolling the coast to stop smuggling, to intercept. And on this map, on this um, chart in the in TNA, in the exhibition, we have, for example, a rather interesting annotation in the bay to the, to the right that this is where the shoal, where the smugglers drop their kegs uh, when there's a cutter around, and then they come back and pick them up later when it's safe. Well, I think we've all read newspaper stories in the recent past about drug smugglers doing exactly the same thing, hiding their barrels in the sea until it's safe to come back, disguising them as lobster pots. So that some things don't change. If you have rigorous um, and, and tough uh, taxes on, on, a, on a pleasure, people will find a way around it. They will smuggle in, or in the case of beer, which was being taxed very heavily or the price was going up during the Napoleonic Wars because the malt tax was um, actually doubled, tripled um, during the Napoleonic Wars because of the need to, to uh, raise revenue. The um, beer was being adulterated in the most appalling way and there, was, there are hideous reports of what was happening, what was going into the beer, not just water, um, all sorts of things were going into the beer to substitute for the expensive malt through into the, there's a book of 1820 which describes the um, various ingredients, most of them poisonous and indeed <laughs> it was a problem that continued um, through into the late 19th century and even into the 20th century there was a great outbreak of, break of what was called alcohol poisoning at the beginning of the 20th century and 3,000 people died and again it was because of adulteration and an attempt to cut costs not necessarily by the brewer but by the next person in the process who was adulterating the beer this 
is quite an important point to bear in mind because homebrew, homebrewed beer, was still a significant product, a significant proportion of the, the beer consumed in England, even at the end of the 18th century, although it was under attack. And the real... Um, the real attack on homebrew wasn't just that you had to pay for a license and so on, but it was because, and the malt, uh, the price of malt going up, it was because the government was really uneasy about people selling homebrew privately, making profit privately, but they also <laughs> were under pressure from the brewers, the big brewers, who were always a, a powerful voice in the, in the um, House of House, well, both House of Commons and the House of Lords, and of course also the distillers of London, and a document that isn't in fact in the exhibition, but which I read in preparation for this show, is in the Distillers Company papers, and that in the 1720s that describes vividly the lobbying process when there was to be, um, as indeed there was, an act that controlled the sale of gin and controlled the adulteration of gin, which of course was the major spirit being drunk in Britain at that time. This is before Hogarth and Gin Lane. It's about 30 years earlier. And it's quite clear that the distillers were already in a very big way of business in London, and they were in a position to print hundreds of copies of leaflets, um, propaganda, in effect, and also to give very substantial bribes to members of Parliament, including, it must be said, Robert Walpole himself, and that is uh, quietly recorded, you know, a present, thanking Sir Robert for his support in our time of difficulty. And <laughs> you can feel that the commercial arm has been very strong for a very long time, and certainly the London Brewers were a powerful voice. Samuel Whitbread, for example, great self-publicist and, and um, extremely effective, he, <laughs> he invited the King and Queen, George III and Charlotte, to inspect his new Watts steam engine. It was, of course, not the first in London. He was the second to, put, to install one, second brewer to install a steam engine. But um, what he was doing, of course, was creating a, a great publicity opportunity. And it was published in The Gentleman's Magazine. It was published in other newspapers at the time. We see in Whitbread actually a very good example of an, the entrepreneurial process in action and the way in which he was making the best use of the fact that beer doesn't travel very well by land, very far by land, because it's so heavy and it's small profits. But if you can send it by sea without it spoiling, he could actually find an export market very far afield. He was Whitbread was exporting, but Samuel Whitbread the first was exporting his beer as far as Canada, as far as India, um, up the Baltic coast into the um, into Russia. Already by the 1760s, and of course um, Whitbreads famously went on to become one of the well, one of the largest businesses in the world in terms of the, the brewing. The scale of those London businesses um, was something extraordinary. But if you go to any small market town today, you may well find that the largest building, apart from the church and the town hall, is still the Maltings, possibly early 19th century, possibly late 19th century, possibly even early 20th century, usually now out of use, turned into an art centre, turned into flats, turned into some other kind of um, commercial purpose. It's very striking how significant on the physical landscape the preparation of the, the alcohol was, as well as, of course, the pubs where people would consume it. Now, the legislation about and the differences between pubs, taverns, and inns 
is very precise, um, certainly until the 19th century when the distinctions became blurred. And the what could be sold in one or another also um, <coughs> became blurred in the, 20th, in the 19th century. But we do have um, a very strong distinction that we should bear in mind that an inn had to supply people, had to supply travellers with drink, even at hours when a tavern might not be allowed to. And it's, it's one of the things that comes through in the literature, in the novels, in Tom Jones, in, um, even in, for example, Vanity Fair, one has a very strong sense of those social distinctions. Now, one of the documents that we particularly enjoyed uh, investigating, because it represents, if you like, a social point of view, I mean, a very strong um, class, perhaps I should say, point of view, is the anger, the, the, the very angry letter written um, by a local magistrate, a local JP, a local landowner, just outside Swaffham in Norfolk at a place called Necton, family called Mason, who are still landowners in the area and had been since the early 18th century. And Lieutenant Colonel Mason found uh, almost a, well, certainly a personal um, indignation about the 1830 Beer Act. And we see part of his... Um, letter here. His letter, if I can just read you um, an extract from it. He's writing to Robert Peel and he's sarcastically referring to the happy result of the New Beer Act of 1830. He's saying this act goes to multiply a, an already crying evil of the country, the host of petty public houses, the resort of drunkards, whores, thieves, poachers and vagabonds of all sorts and so on. And basically what he's concerned about is that by the 1830 Act, the hours of keeping open houses are extended beyond the hours hitherto required in the country, i.e. from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m., whereas they were until now from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. His indignation is partly because no longer, as a result of the Act, did the local magistracy have the power to issue licenses. It was now down to the excise. And from 1830, and any private individual who chose to pay two guineas and could find ten local ratepayers to to back him, could set up as well selling <coughs> beer in a beer house, and this was intended quite deliberately to counteract the horrors of spirit drinking. There were many, many gin sellers, gin houses in London, Crookshank, Rowlandson, and others caricatured them and there's no question that cheap spirits were a problem and that is why there was this attempt to produce outlets for cheaper beer to counteract the spirits and the Beer House Act in that sense had, a sh had quite a success in the short term because um, from 1830 by 1840 many thousands of beer houses had been opened but, of course, the big brewers were always going to be able to produce beer more cheaply than the small brewer could. And in the end, the beer houses fell quite quickly into the hands of the tide, in, into the whole tide system of the big breweries. And so the whole purpose of trying to ensure that there was a supply of cheaper beer to undercut the tide houses failed. But the anger that Colonel Mason's letter expresses is partly a sense of frustration because the magistracy and the large brewers had in fact 
pretty well had the tide house system sorted out and it's clear from one or two of the parliamentary commissions for example in 1817 and then again in the 1820s that was great sense not only among free traders but also um, more widely among politicians that it was wrong for the brewers and the magistracy to control the drinking habits of working men. The reason for that was that beer was still seen as a daily necessity, but we were coming as a nation to a cusp point. 1830 is the beginning of the temperance movement. Alcoholism had been recognized as a disease, as a pathological condition, only, well, by the, in the medical textbooks, only in about 1800. But the movement to reform life, to get people up in the mornings, to get a sober workforce, had really started rather earlier in the 1770s, 1780s. In Yorkshire, for example, we can see a movement for the reform of manners, local magistrates beginning to bring in um, closing hours and saying, well, no drinking on Sunday until after time of church and so on. <coughs> so there was beginning to be a restriction on the traditional liberties of the the working man to to drink because on the whole it was it was the people who had small houses lived in lodgings didn't have a large amount of money couldn't afford a private brewery couldn't brew at home they were the people who depended on the taverns and ales houses for their nutrition for their comfort for their companionship for their relaxation to escape from the children and to have a room have a, a space where they could be alone and be with their friends rather than in the cramped conditions of what were very many poverty-stricken houses so there is a, a sense in which the temperance movement picks up on that Wesleyan Methodist um, general sense of discomfort with drinking at a time when there was great agricultural depression and when the poor laborers were losing the chance to grow their own food and to have their own fuel from the commons because enclosures were closing in on them, as it were. So there is a sense in which the temperance movement it, from the 1830s is actually tackling a slightly different situation from the reform of manners in the 1770s. The temperance movement, f movement from 1830 quite quickly changes into a movement, in some respects rather more extreme, urging teetotalism, total abstinence. And that was problematic because of this issue of working men needing to drink working men needing beer and needing nourishment. We do have polemic in all sorts of forms, and Cruikshank was the most prolific engraver and only turned teetotal quite, <coughs> quite late in his life because his, his father had actually been an alcoholic and had committed suicide, well, had drunk himself to death, basically. And Cruikshank became teetotal and painted the most enormous picture, 13 by 8, um, which was about the evils of alcohol, showing all the circumstances in which people might drink, children might drink, from the cradle to the grave, um, literally from christenings to funerals. And the, that painting, which he took to show Queen Victoria, took it down on the train went from Windsor to Windsor, which seems uh, extraordinary, um, it, it wasn't a great success because, frankly, people didn't want to be hectored about drinking. Um, but he also produced an engraving, a rather interesting engraving, which is in the exhibition here too, again lent by the Museum of London. And uh, details from that show all the possibilities for drink that there were. And uh, for example, one of the little vignettes shows bishops sitting solemnly round a table, passing the port, 
and discussing how they're going to convert the heathen. And meanwhile, a mullah is standing on a part of, on the Quran, in fact, and wagging his fingers at them because, of course, he didn't drink and the Muslims didn't drink. And that was obviously well known to Cruikshank that there was this alternative religious tradition which didn't include alcohol and that the bishops were being hypocritical, and as indeed they were. Um, so the, there's, there was a very strong series of conflicting attitudes in the mid-19th century about alcohol, which were very different from those that had prevailed in the mid-18th century when, yes, Hogarth produced his amazing um, engraving of, of, of Gin Lane and the horrors of Gin Lane as contrasted with the peaceful prosperity of all these fat people in Beer Alley, but which is a much less well-known engraving, in fact. But um, in the mid-19th century, the issue was very much more difficult, very much more um, painful, and there was a lot more anger involved. And, of course, religion uh, played a part, too. The processions of temperance workers trying to persuade small children to take the oath that they would never drink. A lot of brainwashing going on. Water, pure water did become available, one could say, generally. It became a civic requirement, an urban part of the urban improvements from the 1850s. And that undoubtedly made a difference because it could no longer be argued that you had to drink beer because it had been boiled. It was healthier than the, than the water that came from the, from the well or the pump or indeed um, sold door to door, just taken out of the Thames. However, beer remained a table drink and there, the series of design registers here show a very large number of containers, beer jugs, quite literally, which could be taken to the pub and filled with freshly drawn beer for lunch, for, for the midday meal. It wasn't regarded as polite to have beer on the table at dinner. That was another interesting social distinction, but it was perfectly acceptable to drink beer at lunchtime from a jug if you, if you didn't have your own beer, or if you didn't buy bottled beer, which was also becoming available. When we look at the, again, at the material culture of drinking, we see that taxation had a bearing there too, because glass was taxed from the mid-18th century all the way through to um, 1840s. And stoneware, which was a very common material for tankards, for example, in, in public houses indeed have been used for beer bottles as early as the early 17th century, strong salt-based stoneware. Both of those were taxed. And rather an interesting insight into the consumption of glass, archaeological sites show very few fragments of the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of green glass bottles that were consumed. And for example, one election dinner in Durham in 1784 the bill survives, and we see that 390 bottles of alcohol were consumed at this one dinner. But if you were to excavate, you wouldn't find fragments of 390 bottles because the glass was recycled. The cullet could be then turned into more glass, and it's an aspect of <laughs> the archaeology of drink which is, is perhaps rather surprising. And I also found a delightful description of a Swedish horticulturalist in London in the 1740s looking at the, the market gardens between Westminster and Chelsea, Tuttle Fields, you know, the, the neat fields that see, appear on them, the maps of the mid-18th century. And he comments, 
and the vegetables grown there were all for the London market. And it was very high-value land, which is why it didn't get drained and developed until the early 19th century. He comments that the asparagus... 1846, 1746, the asparagus was being forced in the necks of dark green glass wine bottles. Because if you think of it, the dark green glass would keep the asparagus blanched. The heat of the sun would be concentrated by the glass, and of course it would, the glass would keep the wind off the fragile stem. Now that's a very interesting instance of recycling in a, in a, in a rather unexpected way. But the point about the glass is that once the glass tax was taken off in 1845, it was possible to develop, or to, to promote, I should say, sparkling light beers, the kind of beer that Burton-on-Trent Burton had been producing since the 17th century, much praised indeed in the 17th century, the light ales of Burton, the, the bright ales of Burton. But they couldn't travel very far until the railways came. So you have this very interesting crossover of economic factors of transport, improvements in transport, and the change in the um, cost of the bottles, the containers, that suddenly makes bottled beer produced in very large quantities saleable right across the country, a standard product. And again, that the driving forward of that gets a boost in 1860 when Gladstone in introduces the Single Bottle Act and it becomes possible to go and buy a bottle of wine or a bottle of anything from a retailer, which before you hadn't been able to do. If you were of a certain social standing, you could buy a barrel, but that involved a big investment if you were a poorer, per poorer person, so you'd have to just go and buy it by the jug. So there's a, a huge shift suddenly in the middle of the 19th century, well, from the 1860s, which coincides with um, a tremendous improvement in colour printing and the whole idea of commercial design is taken up by the brewers and distillers or by the big businesses that deal in, 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 in drink, in alcohol. And again, we see the results in the exhibition, wonderful, lively posters, but also other kinds of advertising that are exploiting this new factor and this very large new market. There is a, a sense in which one doesn't expect, perhaps, to find posters in among the archives. Perhaps the word archive needs to be expanded in some way because TNA holds an extraordinarily rich visual feast for people who didn't, um, didn't expect it. And I, I was certainly surprised and I have actually spent a lot of time here over the last 40 years, <laughs> but um, I hadn't appreciated quite how much there was below the surface waiting to be discovered. We have a question with this business of the taxation that I referred to, the government policy about taxing alcohol and taxing the production and taxing the selling of it by, by paying, charging for licenses. Because the more it was taxed, two problems I've already mentioned, the more it was likely that spirits would be smuggled and that, that the beer would be adulterated. At the same time, there needed to be a stream, a revenue stream, particularly when there was war. And that's why we chose the 1690 as, as our starting point. We could have gone, or to almost any point in the 17th century, we could have started with James I, because he attempted to get the brewers to give him a benevolence um, based on their consumption of malt, the big, the big London brewers. Uh, it didn't, I think, work very well, but um, it was a it was an attempt to generate income from alcohol. There was another attempt in the 1640s to charge um, duty on wine, 
and indeed the prices were controlled for all alcohol in the 1640s and again and Cromwell issued a, an order about the price at which claret and beer and um, uh, brandy could be sold, could be retailed in 1657 but it's really only in 1690 that we get the absolute <coughs> evidence for this wide range of of taxes, duties on all drinks so that even the novel drinks of tea, coffee, chocolate are having to pay a, a premium. What I found surprising about, about this, and I must admit I did check this with the chap at the bank, the curator at the Bank of England, is that of course the taxes were intimately linked with the Bank of England because the national debt was actually secured on the revenue from the taxes on drinks. So we have that very intimate relationship right from the middle of right from the beginning of the middle of the 1690s um, linking those um, two strands together and a continual balancing act going on while at the same time the wide recognition that drink was necessary it wasn't just a pleasure it was a, it was a, a requirement of life the College of Physicians, when there was this concern about gin in the in the 1720s, the College of Physicians actually went so far as to issue, um, or one of their member, um, to issue a paper saying how worried they were about gin and how it was affecting the mortality of uh, the, the mothers produced in feeble children and the mothers weren't producing children. Actually, when that's tested, and a similar accusation was made um, in the 1740s, when it's tested... Um, against the London mortality rates, it is true that London consumed its people, that London children um, did tend to die young, uh, babies tended not to survive as, as well as in other parts of the country, and the death rate was higher than the birth rate. But it, it, it was attributed to gin, but it's not necessarily provable. It could be to do with bad water, it could be to do with bad living conditions, it could be to do with a number of economic factors and alcohol probably only one of them it's a convenient and, and glamorous one but um, well glamorous I mean dramatic one but um, it does seem as though there's a certain amount of um, playing with the evidence going on what we can say is that the figures for the small retailers or the, the small distillers and the small publicans were extraordinarily high in the um, 18th century in London and in most other towns that you can find, once you look for them, you can find a quite modest premises that were regularly doing a business and possibly um, there's more to be found there. We, 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 we pulled out for the exhibition two inventories, one of a Southwark publican who ran the White Horse down in, well he had two pubs actually, down in Southwark and he was also dealing in hops and his premises were extremely lavishly equipped. On the first floor he had a room with musical instruments and silver and was clearly entertaining in quite a lavish way and on the, in his um, main drinking room, drinking chamber, he didn't have a carpet on the floor, but there were curtains at the windows, there were prints, there were paintings, there were mirrors, there was a special fire grate, it's described, it was clearly more than just an open hearth. He had silver and porcelain for serving punch, he had a very large stock of glasses, and in his cellars, he had several, in his cellars there were spirits, apart from three grates of beer, 
there were spirits of eight different kinds, um, fruit-based and peppermint-based and so on. So he was clearly supplying a wide range of tastes. And the punch was, of course, being made partly from rum and partly from arak, from the um, palm spirit, which became so popular once people went east. Rum, of course, was a product of the West Indies. One of the other um, strands that is, I hope, brought out in the exhibition, and it's a difficult one, is the, or an uncomfortable one, is the way in which the English seizure of the West Indies and the development of the sugar industry brought with it all the evils, of course, of slavery, because rum was cheaper to produce, virtually produced itself. I mean, sugar cane can, in fact, ferment into rum, into an alcohol of sorts. It doesn't require some treatment. But it was much cheaper to produce, leave aside the shipping cost, than brandy from France, which was the preferred spirit in the early 17th century before the West Indies got um, really settled by the British. And the rum trade, the rum entrepreneurs were extremely effective as a lobby and it was West Indian planters, Jamaican planters, who persuaded uh, Samuel Pepys and indeed, of course, James II, um, Samuel Pepys as, as uh, one of the Lords of the Admiralty, to take on rum for the West Indian fleet, for the, for the Navy in the West Indies, as a replacement for brandy from France. And James II, rather interestingly, was concerned about this substitution, was concerned that it was going to be possibly not as good for the sailors, and he's insisted that there should be, it sounds very modern, this, he insisted that there should be um, a check after a year on the health of the sailors, but also that the sailors themselves should be asked what they thought about the substitution. Of course, I don't think that happened because James II fled, um, went to France, but the, the Navy went on with its rum, and the, the rum ration continued through... Um, it, it was Admiral Vernon insisted that it should be diluted because I think he was perhaps, in the 1740s, he was perhaps losing too many sailors overboard, from you know, just overcome by their half pint of rum, but um, it continued until the 1970s. The point about the rum was that you had to give men at sea something to drink. Beer spoiled, or the particular kind of beer that was shipped from London anyway, spoiled after perhaps six weeks at sea. Water, of course, very quickly spoiled because the car it was just Thames water. It wasn't pure. It hadn't been treated in any way. And the casks in which the water was carried on board ship might well themselves not be very pure, been used for other commodities before, for vinegar or oil or indeed alcohol. And so the sailors, desperate, for thir desperate with thirst, remember how much salted food they were consuming, even in... England, ordinary artisans were going to be drinking salt pork, eating salt pork, salt bacon, salt butter, um, salt cheese as part of their normal diet and only the vegetables would not be heavily salted. All their other core foodstuffs were heavily salted and that's particularly acute at sea where there was no alternative and you're surrounded by salt water. So the, the issue of what sailors should drink was really a very important one and the rum story is a very painful one because, of course, in the end, one crop just exhausts the West Indian soil. And by the time, by, by the early 19th century, um, when there's a rum is now being drunk by polite society in large quantities, it's being refined, it's being um, 
kept in bonded warehouses and maturing, and it's very had become a very um, enjoyable drink on gathers, especially in punch. But by the early 19th century, the soil of the West Indies was exhausted, and the economics of slavery and of the sugar and rum businesses were completely um, had completely collapsed. And it becomes quite clear from it's a, it was a gradual collapse that the the families that thought they were so wealthy, the West Indian planters, were actually living very heavily on credit. And the abolition of slavery, or first of all the abolition of the slave trade, and then 20 years later the abolition of slavery, were actually, <laughs> one must almost say, the planters were better off in the year when they got the compensation from the Rothschilds, the English government was lent money by the Rothschilds, were better off in the year they got compensation for the abolition of slavery than they had, had been for the previous 50 years. It's a difficult history, but it again sheds light on, or it's an aspect of our um, the consumption of Britain of, of alcohol in Britain, and it's not a history that is necessarily written in quite that way because the people who write about drink tend to enjoy the statistics, the excise and so on, <laughs> which ignores the smuggling, um, but they, they produce very good statistics. There are wonderful histories of brewing in Britain and histories of distilling and so on, but this wider sociological significance of drink is perhaps not discussed. Recently, there has been, as I'm sure many of you know, a quite a clever advertising campaign by an Indian brewing company using the well-known story of India Pale Ale and, and um, showing how the Indians are sort of turning it back on us that they are now prepared to export to us beer, which is a, a long, <laughs> a, a presumably, they think, better um, than the beer that we sent them in the, in the 1780s, that was, 1770s, that was advertised in the Calcutta Gazette. It's, um, <laughs> it's a, a curious quirk of history, that, rather, rather delightful, um, because certainly I, I don't know whether there's very much evidence for the Muslim rulers of India drinking beer. One can't see quite why they would, and one can't, see, can't quite see why the Hindus would have done either. But um, so far, I haven't found anything that discusses um, the history of beer drinking by Indians in, in, in India in the 19th century. We are, I'm, I'm afraid I've wandered rather far from the images which have been patiently <coughs> clicked up on the screen. This is, of course, the famous um, bass I, I referred to, the registering their design, the two designs, both the triangle um, and the um, diamond mark. They were, as I said, an enterprising business with a great deal of um, reach, one might say. The famous painting showing the woman leaning on the bar at the Folie Bergère, and she has a bottle of bass just carefully positioned beside her. Well, it is product placement. Who knows how that was achieved? It's true that bottled beer bass were one of the pioneers of bottling beer with their label on, and it's perfectly possible that it was a fashionable thing to drink at the Folie Bergère, but it does seem rather surprising. But we were pleased that uh, we were also able to borrow for the exhibition a painting in other Museum of London painting again from, from Storr. Oh, it's a pastel, actually, of a larger painting, which shows a typical Caledonian road public house, actually rather a grand public house because there are large columns and the big plate glass windows and mirrors. But again, we see Bass advertising itself on the wall to the left here. You can just see the triangle. And this painting is, of course, unlike the painting of the tailors working away with their pewter tankards of beer 
of the 1780s, this painting of 1882, the same year, incidentally, as the Folie Bergère, as the, the Manet's Folie Bergère painting. This, this painting is much more a piece of conscious social realism. It's a pastel. The painting itself belongs to Andrew Lloyd Webber, and the painting is, of course, quite large. But it shows the mixture of types and consumption in a London tavern. In a London tavern, and you see the little boy bringing a bottle to be filled, refilled, uh, just below the bar there. The mother feeding her baby gin, a stereotype that one could take back actually to the 1740s. Um, and then men in hats who've come from business, um, in top hats. Uh, men in cloth caps, uh, the, the pretty barmaid, well, perhaps not pretty, elegant barmaid, we can't see whether she's pretty, can we, um, who is serving at one end, but also the rather more practical uh, barman at this end, and then the equipment below the bar. Now, all of that is a social document and is borne out by the criminal records of the time. We can see, for example, in the Old Bailey Sessions records, there is the most extraordinarily high percentage of cases involving alcohol, cases involving incidents in public houses, incidents of theft, of pewter, stoneware mugs, even of silver from public houses. In the 1690s, one of the um, acts that was part of William III's attempts to finance his war with France in 1696, he actually brought in an act to stop taverns using silver drinking vessels. And I had assumed, as a silver person, that that must be a mistake of some kind. Why would they have silver drinking vessels? But when one starts to look at the inventories of tavern keepers, it's quite clear that because a tavern in a town or an inn served a particular local community, almost like a club, then you might very well have your personal drinking vessel behind the bar kept for you. There might well be handsome silver vessels engraved with the name of the tavern, the name of the tavern keeper. There's one in the exhibition here which is pewter, but it's engraved with the arms of a tavern in and the name of a tavern in Reading. Some of them in the V&A are engraved stop thief. In other words, if this is taken to a pawn shop, it's obviously stolen goods. And the percentage of cases, as I say, in the Old Bailey Sessions records make it very clear how significant taverns were as the central, central focus of local social life, of employment, the place where you might get paid for your week's work, the place where you might celebrate your coming out of apprenticeship. There's a book published in um, 1839 by John Dunlop which lists, he was a temperance um, worker and a magistrate in Greenwich, and he lists all the occasions for drinking that arose in, in, in various trades, he, 92 trades he describes, and he comes up with almost a thousand different occasions for having a drink, going into apprenticeship, coming out of apprenticeship, completing a contract, certainly there are many payments for beer, barrels of beer for a, a building being finished, that sort of thing, for um, becoming a master, for um, acquiring a new skill, for entering a livery company, and so on. You can imagine the range. And the Coopers, for example, the, my first ever exhibition 
a long time ago at the London Museum was about coopering in, in East London and we had an elderly cooper come and tell us what happened when a cooper passed out of his apprenticeship and it involved tar and feathers and a lot of beer and was obviously quite unpleasant and I'm not at all surprised that it was bonish <laughs> but there was this sense in which Drinking was absolutely part of working life. It wasn't as it is today, something separate, something rather embarrassing, something that human resources doesn't want you to do because it's dangerous. It was simply something that happened during the course of the day. And those tailors that we saw at the beginning, those tailors of the 1780s sitting with their pewter tankards beside them, might have had those tankards filled up four times perhaps. They're court tankards. Beer was always priced by the court. It was sold, you could buy a pint, but it was normally sold in court, in court tankards. And that they would be drinking through the day quite steadily, keeping themselves going on, if it was London Porter, 8%. If it was a, a, a weaker beer, it might be 4% proof. But that is where they're getting their nourishment. And perhaps one hot meal a day. This was not a society in which people had stoves or ovens or access to hot meat at home necessarily. And again, that's something we've 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 lost, we've forgotten, in our um, in the twentieth century, where we take for granted that there is um, hot food always available, just as we take for granted that there is ice always available. One of the comments made by many travellers about Nottingham, for example. Nottingham produced very good beer, but from the 1690s onwards, and Daniel Defoe describes in the 1720s how very good the Nottingham beer is, and the point is that it was kept below ground. Nottingham is absolutely riddled, the, the uh, ground there is riddled with tunnels and cellars. The beer was kept below ground. You went below ground to drink it, so it would be cool, and it would be more refreshing. And since you couldn't achieve coolness, because most people didn't have ice houses, didn't have access to the aristocratic luxury of ice, cool beer was something that was very much valued. So again, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, an aspect of social drinking that we've pretty well forgotten. Now, I mentioned those whiskey, those um, <coughs> enterprising Scots who found a very ready market um, in the South for their product. Whiskey was extremely, um, became extremely popular by the 1860s, and the whiskey distilling industry was extremely quick to take advantage of phylloxera. In 1860, Gladstone had introduced the Single Bottle Act, and it was possible to, for inexpensive wine to be sold by the glass. In fact, Victoria Wine started selling wine in the East End at a penny a glass, which was much cheaper than beer. Beer was three and halfpence, uh, th three halfpence, threepence halfpenny, um, a quart, fourpence a quart at that time. So wine would be much cheaper. It wasn't actually very successful. But then phylloxera hit the French vineyards. It was a kind of um, own goal because they brought in from America the strong vine roots of the Native American grapes, but they brought with them um, a louse, a mite, which attacked the French vineyards and virtually swept across France. A little bit earlier... Um, another disease had attacked the um, grapes in Madeira so that Madeira ceased to be available for about 20 years and the whiskey business boomed and I do not think that's a coincidence. We have here an example of the 
splendid, um, one of the splendid pieces of graphic design by a company called Patterson's who are here forging ahead into the future. Actually, their future was about to be rather short because they collapsed in ignominious bankruptcy about two years after they produced this poster. But um, there was this very striking um, commercial enterprise from the Scots. And as I say, although the barley that was being used was no longer necessarily grown in Britain, it was a very significant part of our import-export trade. And we, I'm going way outside my period, but um, I was quite struck that in this First World War, temperance had, of course, been a very powerful activate, been a very powerful policy for Lloyd George, though he hadn't managed to get complete um, abstinence in Britain. He had produced a whole series of measures in the First World War in order to reduce consumption of alcohol and weaken the beer and reduce opening hours and deny people the right to buy spirits um, in a pub or consume spirits in a pub and so on. You couldn't treat people to a drink, to a round of drinks. It became, it became illegal and so on. But even more interesting when we were dependent, as we were, dependent on imports of grain from the Americas, from North America, for survival in the First World War, Hoover, in 1916, actually attempted to insist that none of the American grain was to be used for brewing here in Britain, because he was attempting to, um, in fact, enforce um, uh, temperance here. And I will say the British government did resist that. The, there, was a, there was a sense in which there would be total social disorder if beer was not available, even if it was diluted and only for certain hours a day and so on, and under these tremendous restrictions. And actually there's an example of how dangerous it could be to introduce violent restrictions, I mean heavy restrictions. In 1917, one of the final triggers of the Russian Revolution was that the Russian government cut off the supply of vodka. And that was very well known. That, I mean, obviously the revolution was a shock to everybody, but the fact that restriction on alcohol, which was a popular policy among, in, uh, in government circles, that restriction on alcohol was actually one of the triggers of the revolution, undoubtedly had a bearing on the British government's decision to be slightly more, um, to re slightly relax controls in 1917. There seems to have been a great unease about the possibility of revolution here too um, and alcohol or the capacity the, the right to consume alcohol would have been a factor in that so we have a political strand running all the way through um, where, where, where drink is concerned and even the word drink almost has a kind of negative overtones now, which is rather sad, because here was something that was a necessity of life, a pleasure, is still a pleasure, something which creates sociability, something which can, can to some extent, nourish, even now. And um, if it wasn't for the hideousness of alcopops and sweetening drinks to give them to young, you know, very young people and getting them drinking far too, far, far before they should, um, I think actually we, we'd probably be more comfortable with alcohol than we are. And I noticed, uh, I was in the train coming down from Durham the other day and noticed three stories to do with drink in the paper. One, a rather sad one, the closing of the Young's, final closing of the Young's Ram Brewery, which I was anticipated some months ago, but um, finally going, one of the very large sites in London given over to brewing. And um, Absolute Vodka is struggling 
but a more positive headline. Longer pub hours mean less trouble. I think there's a message there for legislators. Thank you. Thank you so much, Philippa, for a fantastically stimulating and interesting lecture. This event was recorded live on September the 28th, 2006, at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Philippa Glanville, Senior Research Fellow at the Victoria and Albert Museum. This podcast is copyright for National Archives, all rights reserved.